Amen. It's so good to be with God's people and to worship together. So if you have a copy of God's Word, find Genesis chapter 42. Genesis chapter 42, we've been working our way uh, through the whole book of Genesis, but particularly over the last several weeks through the life of Joseph. And it's been been quite a journey together. Genesis chapter 42. The Word of God says, When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brothers, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to them. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. When now Joseph was governor over the land, he was the one who sold to all the people of the land, and Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said, they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land you have come to see. And they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the son of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you. Or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your household and bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between him. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. 
And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and replace every man's money in his sack, and he gave them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack and to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money was in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, My money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. And at this their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? When they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies. And we said to him, We are honest men. We've never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your household and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men. And I will deliver your brother to you and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin. And this, and all this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you. For his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. This is the word of God. Change. Love it or hate it, change is a part of life. I'm sure you've seen this in your own life, but we certainly have seen this in the life of Joseph. Consider how the last chapter ended. Look at this at chapter 41, where we left off last week. We see that Joseph is given a new name, Zephaneth Paneah. How would you love for that to be your name or your child's name, right? And he's given in marriage to Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On. And, and Joseph is set over the land of Egypt. And we see that before the famine came, two sons are born to Joseph through Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On. And here's what he called them. He named the firstborn Manasseh, which means forgotten because God has caused him to forget all his hardships and all his father's house. And the second is called Ephraim, which means fruitful, for God had made him fruitful in the land of his affliction. So Joseph has experienced a lot of change, hasn't he? He's gone from prisoner to governor. He's gone from a single man to a married man. He went from, from fatherless, from, having, from being a childless to being the father of two boys. He's even given this Egyptian name and given all this power and privilege and prestige. Yet Joseph is a lesson to us that while the circumstances of life will change, faithfulness to God is meant to be a solid rock on which our life will stand. Friends, he's given this Egyptian name and pushed into this Egyptian culture, 
And yet Joseph still lives for God's name and for God's glory, not for the glory of the culture and the Egyptians around him. He knew that everything that had happened to him was from the hand of God. And that God had caused him to forget his hardships and God had caused him to be fruitful in affliction. And all of this is going on while Joseph has family back in Canaan. And chapter 42 of Genesis really begins a new section showing how Joseph is going to be reunited with his family and God is going to keep his promises to him and the dreams that he gave to Joseph all the way back at the beginning of his life. And over this chapter, we see that this change has happened over decades. There is decades that have separated chapter 37 from chapter 42 and that, what, and that much has changed, but also much has stayed the same. And we see that Joseph's brothers, with all of their faults and issues, have begun to mature and grow in their faith, kind of. <laughs> they've, got, they've begun making progress in the right direction. In fact, this whole chapter is about maturity, about growing in your faith. What does it look like to grow up? What does it look like to, in the words of the Apostle Paul, put away childish things? Joseph is about to meet his brothers again, and he's going to see signs of progress and maturity in their faith. All of the ingredients of maturity are there, even if the finished product isn't yet. So we're going to look at five ingredients of a maturing faith. Think of us sort of making a stew together of what, ingre- of what maturity in the faith looks like. And here's the first ingredient. The first ingredient of a maturing faith is trouble. The first thing that you need to mature in your life and faith is trouble, trial, difficulty is what ultimately prompts so much progress, not just in Joseph, but in his whole family. A famine is going to unite this family. And many of us, I don't think, are really familiar with how devastating a famine like this would have been. This isn't uh, the sort of brief famines we happen to get right before a snowstorm when you try to go and all the bread and milk and toilet paper are gone, right? No, 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 no. These people don't have grocery stores. They don't have supply chains and truckers. They don't have this. If they're going to get it, they need to grow it or know someone who can grow it and be able to travel to get it. And that is just not an option at this point. And consider even the ability to travel is very difficult and dangerous. They don't have cars and friends. As they're traveling along these roads, there are lots of desperate people who would do anything to get what little food they might have. We're at desperation. Think third world country levels here. And this famine has devastated the area. And Joseph, last week, interpreted Pharaoh's dream, which was a prophecy from God that there was going to be seven years of plenty and seven years of famine across the land. And remember that Joseph made a plan there in Egypt to store up grain so that Egypt was prepared. And Joseph's actions didn't simply save Egypt. It ended up saving his family. Look at verse 1. When Jacob, that's Joseph's dad, learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? 
And he said, Behold, I've heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we might live and not die. We notice that it's been decades. The brothers have grown up, but some things are still the same. Parents, have you ever looked at your kids and gone, Just do something. Don't just stand there. Jacob's still the only one in this family with any initiative, with any get up and go. And so he calls his sons to action. Go to Egypt, get us food, and bring it back, or we are going to die. Some of you parents may have said something similar to that to your kid, right? Go to the store, get it, and bring it back. The brothers really should have taken action. So Jacob sends the brothers out, much like he did to send them into the field. But we also see that things have been still the same with Jacob. Look at verse 3. So ten of the brothers went out to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brothers, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among all who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. So notice, Jacob sends out ten of the brothers, but he keeps Benjamin back. And notice it was because he feared what might come to him. But What about the other ten? He seems he's only concerned with one of the brothers over against the ten. And if you've been with us through this journey, through the life of Joseph, you remember that Jacob favored Joseph first. And now Joseph's gone and and he got a new favorite. Benjamin, right? Remember that all of these brothers have the same father, but they had four different mothers And as we've watched the life of Jacob, he's always favored Rachel and the sons that came through Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin, over the others. And we see that Jacob still has the same vice that has wrecked his life over and over again. He is going to continue to show favorites and cause issues everywhere in his life. You don't have 12 kids and pick one to be the favorite. He buckled down even more in response to the loss of Joseph and concerns over the famine. So hear me, trouble is going to cause this family to grow up. Trouble is going to cause this family to come back together, though it's hard to really begin to see that in these opening verses. And let me bring it home to you, because trouble in your life will have one of two effects. Trouble will either cause you to grow up, or to become ingrown. It will either cause you to move forward from something, or to, like Jacob, just buckle down in the same sins. It will cause you to either pursue the same old vices, or to pursue new virtues. And so we need to see that a mature faith is never a comfortable faith. That you can think of the person in your life who you just can imagine as that model of maturity. And there is not a single one of them that has not been through the fires of affliction and come out stronger and more fortified. An easy life will never get you a more excellent faith. And here's another name for this. God uses growing pains. Any of y'all remember, uh, teenagers, I'm sure you all have gone through this. As you're growing and as your body grows, your muscles begin to stretch and mature, and you can have this muscle pain as you grow, growing pains, right? And so in your life, as you experience trouble and tribulation, God is going to be in the midst of it, growing your faith. 
and trouble is going to grow Jacob and his sons. Because this is just the beginning of what's ahead for this family. The first ingredient to a maturing faith is trouble. Let's look at the second ingredient. The second ingredient is testing. So they're going to have trouble and trial and tribulation. This famine's in the land. But in the midst of this, they're going to get testing. Let's look from verse six, uh, at verse 6 on. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold it all to the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dream he had dreamed to them. And he said to them, you are spies. You've come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We're all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. And then Joseph said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land you've come to see. And they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here, send one of you, and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you. Or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put all of them together in custody for three days. So the brothers head to Egypt And who is working the food distribution? Joseph, their long-lost brother that they sold into slavery. And remember, it's been decades since they saw him. Joseph, when they sold him into slavery, was 17. He is now somewhere in his upper 30s to his mid-40s. And not only that, he's dressed up like an Egyptian, likely. And we learn that in later conversations, he would use a translator with them. So he's doing everything he can to not be noticed by them. And Joseph ha- comes up with a plan in light of this. He knows that this may be his moment to reconcile with his long lost family. And he remembers, imagine the grin that comes over his face as he sees his brothers bowing down to him just as he dreamed back, back earlier in his life. And he notices there's only 10 brothers, he probably counted them and went, wait, there's, there's one missing. And he wants to gather information. So Joseph accuses them of being spies, and he throws them into prison. And I actually don't think Joseph is being vindictive here. It's probably easy to read that and think, man, he's getting his just desserts, though there is a nice, sweet irony, isn't there? They threw Joseph into the pits and sold him as a servant. And now for three days, they're going to live in the pit of an Egyptian prison. But this pit had a purpose. Joseph, I think, wanted time to make a plan to kind of discern what to do. He also wanted to keep them off the streets because let me tell you, Canaanites were not welcomed in Egypt in these days. Where else were they going to stay? They didn't have anything. And Joseph, as a high-ranking official, could keep his eye on him 
while they're in prison. So Joseph's really being very wise in this plan he's, he's concocting here. And he says that all of this was to test them. Look back at verse 15. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you, are, while you remain confined that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh surely you are spies. And so Joseph is wanting to see if his brothers have matured and grown up and if they could be trusted. He puts them in a situation much like they were in back in Genesis 37. Think about this. He offers for one of the brothers to go back while the others remain confined. He's wanting to see, will any of these brothers stab the other in the back? Are they going to begin to sell one another out? They've even got three days in prison for someone to concoct a plan to sell the others out. He's wanting to see, will they sell one another out or even all the brothers into Egyptian slavery out of convenience? And so Joseph tested his brothers. And we need to consider that our faith will be tested as well. You are going to have old temptations reappear in your life. And you need to ask yourself, are you ready to stand firm? Friends, they will look often just as appealing to you as they did then. These brothers were once dishonest, and they have the opportunity to be dishonest again, don't they? But they are going to be given the opportunity to be honest. And this wasn't an easy encounter. You got to consider the pressure, the fear that was around them. They had pressure to lie and to save their own skin. And while God never tempts us to evil, he will test us for faithfulness. And let me tell you something, despite what you've been told, God will give you more than you can handle in your own power so that you need to rely on his power and his strength in order to stand firm in the faith. A mature faith will be tested. And so it's one, it it is a faith that has been purified in trial and testing. And so Joseph does all this to see if his brothers have changed. And it's out of this we begin to see the third ingredient of a maturing faith. We have trouble, testing, third, this one's kind of a long one, taking responsibility. Mature faith means taking responsibility for what you've done or what you haven't done. Let's look at verse 18. On the third day, Joseph said to his brothers, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go carry grain for the famine of your household, and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. And that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben, always the one who opens his mouth to answer first, said, Did I not tell you not to sin against this boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between him. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. 
And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and replace every man's money in his sack and give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. So Joseph, we're three days later now, has, has clarified the plan a little bit. One brother is going to remain in custody while the others travel back. So he began to realize that apparently the nine bro- one of the brothers isn't going to sell out all of the other nine because that's going to be problems if they ever get out, right? He's not gonna, one of them isn't going to sell out all of them, but would nine of them sell out one of them and leave him and just go home and take their stuff and, and not mention him anymore? Would they leave the one and sell Simeon out the way they did Joseph? And in the midst of it, it actually appears that the brothers are repentant for what happened to Joseph. Remember, they're confessing this to somebody that's a stranger. They don't know that this is Joseph, and they confess that they wronged him. Reuben speaks up and says, I told you so. We shouldn't have done this. And this has a powerful impact on Joseph. He weeps and recognizes true repentance. They have Simeon bound Joseph gives them food for the road, and he sends them back to bring Benjamin with them. Joseph sees that though his brothers still have lots of faults, they have grown up. They have matured. They have taken responsibility for their sin. They are repentant, and while they may not know how to make it right, they're about to make it right. This is so important in our world today because we live in a world today that hates personal responsibility. We live in a world where people just don't want to own it. And notice that ownership and responsibility actually begins with what you don't say. They didn't, they didn't make excuses. They didn't say, well, if my dad hadn't picked a favorite, we wouldn't have done it. Even though Jacob was wrong to do that, they didn't lean into what had been done to them. The brothers didn't even try to blame one of the brothers over the others, even though some of them did play a bigger role. They didn't stutter, and they didn't even simply say, I'm sorry for how that made you feel. No, no, no. They confessed their guilt, and they took ownership of their sins. They said, we should not have done that. And this is a model for you, because when it comes to sin in your life, the best thing you can do is to take ownership and cut the excuses. Because friends, where there is no responsibility, there is no repentance, and where there is no repentance, there will be no redemption and restoration. You know why there's no restoration in your life with people? Sometimes you just got to say, I was wrong, and then stop talking, (laughs) You don't got to go into what happened or what you did or what has happened to you because there's a point where it just doesn't matter. So let me ask you this. Where do you need to take responsibility in your life? Where do you need to cut the excuses, stop blaming what others have done to you, and simply own and confess your sin without qualification and confess your guilt? Because here's the thing. So many of us fear that by confessing we're wrong, we're going to live under it for the rest of our life in this pit of despair. But actually, by confessing it, you will find freedom and you will experience forgiveness. That's the lie Satan wants you to have. He wants you to think that by sharing it, it somehow will make the problem worse, whereas sharing it will actually 
be the key to finding the reconciliation and the forgiveness that you were searching for. Notice how Joseph responds in forgiveness. It's sort of implied there. He could have been much harder on these brothers. You got to think, he had the full weight of the Egyptian military and power behind him. He could have made things a lot worse for these guys than three nights in a really, really bad Egyptian prison. He could have had them killed on the spot. He could have really made them suffer. But not only does he send them out of the prison, he gives them blessing, money, and grain as they go back. He makes sure they have more than enough food for the road and the money back from what they purchased, and he sends them back. Friends, we have the responsibility to repent, yes, but we also have the responsibility to forgive those who have repented to us to take responsibility for the calling in our life to forgive as we have been forgiven. Remember, Joseph knew what it was to have his hardships and his sorrows forgotten. He named his son Manasseh, right? To say that God had forgotten all of these things. So he's able to let it go and forgive and, and extend mercy to these brothers. We see this maturing faith in the midst of trouble, testing, taking responsibility, and the fourth ingredient, trustworthiness. Ingredient number four is trustworthiness. Look what happens next, verse 26. They loaded up their donkeys with grain and they departed. And as one of them opened his sack and gave his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. And he said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. And at this, their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another saying, what is this that God has done to us? Joseph makes the situation a little more interesting. He doesn't simply give them the grain they paid for. He ends up putting the money back into their pouches that they used to pay for it. He gives these brothers the perfect opportunity to lie, to skip town with money and food, and to just leave Simeon behind. It's like, well, I got my food, I got my money, let's get out of here, guys. We, can, we, we don't really need our brother. We already gave one, one away, right? What's another, right? They come back home, and you can read this, in verses 29 to 34, they actually tell their father what happened. Now, they don't come forward about what happened to Joseph years ago, but they were honest about what happened in Egypt. The brothers prove to be trustworthy. And we've been talking about this in our men's week, uh, men's group uh, that we meet on Wednesdays, talking about a kingdom man as one who walks faithfully with God. And one of the marks we've been talking about of a kingdom man is walking with integrity, with trustworthiness, to be able to know that they're going to tell the truth and live according to the truth. And one of the most important aspects of your life is your integrity. It's not something you can earn. It's not something you can buy. It is only something that can be matured over time. And let me tell you something. I've and let me speak particularly to the young people in the room because I have been where you've been not that long ago, right? And there is a temptation for you to be dishonest with your parents about all kinds of things. Watch, they start looking shifty right now, right? I want you to consider 
the weight of the guilt of Joseph's brothers, and not only what their dishonesty did to Joseph, but what their lies did to their father. Think about this. To cover up for their sin, they told their father Joseph was dead. And Joseph has this weight of loss on his whole life. So let me just tell you this. Don't believe that lies never hurt anyone. Don't believe it. The culture is going to tell you all the time that, well, what's a tiny lie going to do to bother anybody? Friends, this tiny lie is blown up. Every tiny lie will will grow into something. Deception always harms other people. And don't ever believe that the sin's not going to be found out because, friends, this this is working into a situation where these brothers are about to be exposed. So I want to say this, value your integrity. And if you've lied today, the good news is that we have a Savior who never lied and who always told the truth. And that he has died in your place and risen again so that your sins could be forgiven and to enable you to walk now in integrity and truth. You can put behind the dishonesty that you've lived in and walk in newness of life. And that might begin by if you have lied to someone in the room, the application of the sermon here is that you would confess your deception to them and to find forgiveness and freedom and life. And if you really begin to like feel nervous here and go, man, I don't like that the preacher's talking about me. I'm not talking about you. God's trying to tell you something. Go to them, repent, be honest, and live now by the power of the Spirit in trustworthiness. And this brings us to the fifth and final ingredient. The fifth and final ingredient of a mature faith, I think the most important one is trust in the Lord to trust in the Lord. Look how the passage ends, verse 35. Look at this. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin. All of this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Reuben, always the helpful one, kill my two sons if I don't bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. We all have a Reuben in our family who when they open their mouth, you just know it's not going to be helpful what they're about to say, right? But he said, my son shall not go down with you for his brother is dead and he's the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. So notice this. Jacob is basically saying, I choose Benjamin over Simeon. I'm not sending him back. Simeon needs to clean his room anyway. It's okay. More, more grain for us. So he, he's, he's switching his sons. Here. And Reuben, again, Reuben is the oldest, and he never, fa- he never has something good to offer in the Genesis account. He's like, take my sons if it doesn't work out. Like, no, that's just not, just not helpful. And friends, here's what we see. This family is maturing, but they still have issues. You need to realize something. Maturing faith can still be very messy faith. And that's something we all need to realize is we have to meet people where they are and see where they can go rather than thinking they're going to be the finished product. 
very quickly after that. This has been decades of these people, and there is progress, just maybe not as much as we would like to see, right? And notice, that's what's missing from this family's conversation, is God's promises to this family. Notice that there's not a single mention that God promised that a nation would come through them. There's no mention of the promise God gave to Adam right after the fall that a Savior is going to come who will crush the serpent's head and reverse the curse. There's no thought given to the way God brought Sarah's womb to life and blessed Abraham and all that he did through Isaac and the incredible things that God did. Even through Jacob, his father, who's speaking here, there was no trust in the Lord. And yet I believe this is actually meant as a bit of a contrast here between Jacob's lack of trust and Joseph's faithful trust in the Lord. Because Joseph did trust the Lord. He had this one opportunity with his family. He sees that God was keeping his word. I mean, the brothers came and bowed down to him at least once. And the dream promised they'd do it three times. So he's got more opportunities coming. And so he was setting up a situation to get his family to Egypt, to safety in the midst of this famine, and to reconcile with them so that the promises would be fulfilled. This was all an act of faith on the part of Joseph. He knew that if God could bring Isaac back from the mountain, God could provide in this situation. That if God could do all of these things in the life of Isaac and Jacob, God could be with him. And that if God could take Joseph from the prison to the penthouse, from prisoner to governor, he could work all of this together for good. So Joseph steps out in faith in light of that reality. And I don't think he knew exactly how this was going to work out when he started. I think he's like, let's give this a shot. (laughs) Sometimes faith is just the step forward And God works out the rest. He did what he could, and he left the rest in the hands of God. So let me ask you this. When trial and testing comes, who will you be more like? Are you going to be like Jacob, who's just so concerned? He's like forgot everything God had ever said or promised or revealed to him at all about the fact that his sons were secure in the plan of God. A nation's going to come through them. God would keep them. Are we eager to remember God's promises or to forget them? Because Joseph remembers them and acts in light of them. The, and the foundation of all of your future maturity is going to be present faith in the promises of God. The only way you will grow and be more spiritually mature is by looking back to what Jesus has done for you and looking forward to what Jesus will do in the future. You've got to be kind of cross-eyed with your faith. But that's the only way to move forward. It's to not always have your eyes on what might be right in front of you, but to have your eyes on what's happened and where it's going. Friends, many of us are tempted to look around at what's right in front of us, but the eyes of faith are set firmly on Calvary and on the day of Jesus' return, and that's what we walk forward in light of. And we also need to realize that even those with maturing faith need the forgiveness of the gospel. Hear me, 
We're so quick to talk about how the world needs the message of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And they do. We're quick to talk about how our friends and neighbors need to know God's grace. And they do. But could it be that our faith is not maturing and our mission is not advancing because we think they need it, but we don't? We think they need something, but we're not even willing to think about it or remember it at all. Some probably begin to go, man, he's getting, starting to talk about that Jesus dying and rising thing again. I'm going to turn off. It's like, no, 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 no. That isn't just for the lost people here. We all need to remember that. Because unless we see how great the gospel is, it's not just the way you get saved. That's part of it. You get saved and come into a relationship with God that way, but it's also how God matures us toward the day when we will be presented before Jesus. We need to be reminded our hope is not in ourselves, but in the one who has done it all, and until we realize that, we will never walk in maturity as we should. And the forgiveness of Joseph toward his brothers in this moment is a picture of what Jesus has done for us. He forgives us of our sins And he fills our lives with grain of righteousness and hope and the Holy Spirit. Let me close with this. If God could take ten selfish, backstabbing brothers and mature them toward being the patriarchs of Israel, and he's going to do that, right? We know where the story is going. What can God do through you and your family through the power of the Holy Spirit? God, today, whatever your response needs to be, God is calling us to take a step forward toward a more mature faith. Maybe for some of us, that means taking the initial step of placing your faith in Jesus, turning, confessing your sins to God, turning by faith and going, Jesus, I'm making you the Savior and the boss of my life. But for others of us, That means living that out and going, Jesus, you're still the boss of my life, so I know I need to confess this sin to this person that I've sinned against. And I know that I need to go home and I need to be more serious about getting in your word and praying and and looking at my neighbors who I know are in need to take ownership of our life, of our sins, to stop the excuses and to embrace God's forgiveness and grace. I want us to stand and I want us to pray together, but I want to invite you in this time as the band comes up and prepares to lead us again in worship, that this is a time to do business with God. This is a time to do whatever God would have you to do. You know what it is. Whatever area of your life you need to take ownership over, whatever area of your life you need to lay before him and to have him forgive and give new life to Friends, this is the time to do that. I normally don't do something like this, but I actually am going to be down front if you're somebody who needs to just share something openly. Maybe you need to talk to somebody. I'm going to be here, uh, and I would encourage you, whether you need to come forward and talk to me, whether you need to come forward and pray at the altar, whether you need to go right now and walk across the room to the person you know you've wronged, do it. Nobody's going to be keeping an eye on you, I promise. Let's bow our heads and let's pray together. God in heaven, we come to you now in light of your word, asking that you would mature us more in our faith. That you would have us to see that the trouble and the testing of our life is producing in us 
a maturity and a rock-solid foundation of our faith. But help us see that you call us to take responsibility and to live in integrity and trustworthiness and that none of that can happen apart from trust and faith in you. I pray right now for anybody within the sound of my voice who does not know you and has not placed their faith in you, that, Lord, your Holy Spirit would prompt them to do that now, to pray to you, God, I'm a sinner, and to confess their sins to you and to say, I'm making you now, Jesus, the Lord and the master of my life to forgive me of my sins, that you have died and risen again to give me new and everlasting life. And Lord, I pray for those of us that have done that, that we would continue to live in light of that gospel message, to respond as you would have us to with ownership and integrity and clarity of of the forgiveness we've received and the one that we extend to others. And we ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. with God's people. There's probably so many ways to begin to apply this message. And I encourage you not to rush on out of here. My favorite part about church, this is going to sound weird, my favorite part about church is when it's over. What I mean is, my favorite part about church is being able to be with God's people afterwards, <laughs> to pray and encourage one another. It actually just starts now. <laughs> if you thought it was over, it actually is just beginning. So I'd encourage you to be here uh, with others and to talk um, to spend time as long as you need. We close this time together with a benediction, a promise from God's word for the road ahead. And we
we read this from the book of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.